Hello and welcome to Day Unplugged on Tuesday the 14th of April 2020. Mark Pender is stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. At the weekend, the so-called OPEC Plus Group, that's essentially OPEC with Russia and Mexico added in, agreed to an unprecedented collective cut in oil production of some 9.7 million barrels a day, about 10% of global supply, and that to be introduced in May and June. In fact, Saudi, Kuwait and the UAE have all promised to make even deeper reductions than agreed, and the world's biggest producer, the US, will also be trimming its output. But oil prices are still struggling, and in large part, that reflects worries that demand could fall even faster. Just last Thursday, the IMS said it thought that the coronavirus pandemic would tip the global economy into its deepest recession since the Great Depression. And its new forecast, published just a few hours ago, shows world GDP shrinking 3% this year. That compares with a forecast of positive growth of 3.3% made just in January. And within this, the US is put at minus 5.9%, Japan minus 5.2%, the Eurozone a pretty awful minus 7.5%, with Italy at minus 9.1%, and the UK at 6.5%, but minus 6.5%. China and India are still shown to have positive growth of one2 and 1.9% respectively, but these are historically very low rates. And the warning is that things could be even worse. So let's have a look at what the latest numbers are telling us. Mark, any fresh clues from your side about just how bad the US downturn is going to be? Well, um, I guess we're probably going to get those indications tomorrow with uh, empire uh, with uh, retail sales this will be for the month of march and also industrial production which will also be for the uh, month of march uh, what we the what we've had out of the us so far as as well as canada is um, employment data which have just completely collapsed and uh, so it makes you know the assessment very um, you know unpredictable but um, these will be the first indications retail sales being on the demand side uh, for the US and industrial production being on the supply side so we'll be able to see what kind of a shock on each side um, is expected pretty much similar shocks by the Econoday consensus which is minus seven for, for headline retail sales that's a monthly drop that is gargantuan and about minus four for industrial production, which is roughly the same because that's a volume measure. So they're, they're both in the same camp, maybe, you know, uh, 120th or some uh, of a decline immediately. Sampling is always an issue here because we uh, depends on what part of the month uh, things are sampled in. Um, and also uh, responses uh, are also difficult because you're more likely to get a response from a, a firm earlier in the month and they may not even be home later in the month. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there'll be some um, uncertainty. Uh, so far, uh, uh, there's been some lower than usual um, sampling in today's import and export price from the BLS and also last week's uh, CPI, I believe. Um, but the uh, the statistics agencies are still, uh, you know, they haven't uh, made any uh, 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 guesstimates yet on this data, and they're still releasing it as usual. So it's a little bit of a bumpy period as far as that goes, the sampling goes. But And also how much this contraction is going to happen. I mean, these are, IMF is guessing. And uh, we'll get Chinese GDP on Friday. And the last I saw, it was a 6% um, year-on-year decline for the first quarter. And that 
follows an endless series of predictable 6% uh, or incremental moves, uh, slowing and growth. So now we're going to get a gigantic contraction. Then we'll really give you a test on the legitimacy of the Chinese uh, data um, uh, authorities. Well, it'd be in- interesting to see. Yeah, I think I'm a dead right on that. I mean, it really is going to be, I think, very much one of the focal points of this week, the, the China numbers. So, so, I think they're talking about 6% down on the year and a possible 10% quarter-on-quarter quarter contraction in GDP. And looking at it from, from what it seems to be the case is that we've got a lot of uh, the larger businesses which have actually resumed work. I think they're talking about, officially anyway, somewhere between 80 and 90% or so. But there's still a lot of the medium and, and smaller size companies which are effectively continuing to be hit by the lockdown so it's, it's going to be fascinating to see just how much of this is actually reflected in the numbers be it you know they can actually be believed and realistic and authentic or really you've got to take them with a pinch of salt uh-huh. but i think were we to see a nasty surprise with china which let's be honest i think people looking to that country to try and you know lead the world you know out of this um, this crisis bad numbers there because certainly you know really give the equity market something a major clobber uh-huh. Um, what else we got? I should say, well, so just switching across to Europe, um, I suppose it's well, kind of good news, if, or it might may be a little bit premature, personally thinking, but we've had some limited easing on the, uh, the COVID-19 restrictions in Austria, Italy and Spain being announced over the course of the last couple of days or so. Uh, this is still very limited. It's just a number of shops and things being allowed to open. Some factories also being allowed to reopen, but by and large, the lockdown in general still applies. From has extended its lockdown now until May the 11th, although from what uh, President Macron was saying yesterday, that has now been pretty well penciled in as the date when we will start to see some opening up the economy there as well. Uh, but as far as the UK is concerned, it's still very much the case that um, it's, well, we're due to get an official announcement this Thursday about the state of the lockdown here, but it seems, uh, well, I'll say virtually guaranteed it will be continued. What we have seen coming out of Europe, um, which was, I think it's got to be regarded as disappointing. Uh, last Thursday, the Eurozone, the Eurogroup finance ministers, they agreed to a 500 billion euro rescue, rescue package for those uh, those countries hardest hit across the region by this pandemic. Now, yeah, that's re- it's taken quite a long time to come up with this. And this comes after the ECB not long ago was intimating that it thought we'd need something around about one and a half trillion or so just to get the ball rolling. So I think it's still really quite underwhelming and it's it's not really the first time that the block as a whole has been slow to respond to and, and more important in this instance it's it's kind of failed to grab a real opportunity to show it can act cohesively and you know and deliver in a way that would instill real investor confidence in its ability to uh, to deal with a crisis well, well what about the ecb i mean they haven't really been hitting the gas as hard as other central banks they haven't. That's right. And they still got room. And the last you know, real measure they made was back on the, the 18th of March when they had their emergency meeting and decided to introduce this uh, pandemic emergency purchase program, the so-called PEPP. Lots of these anachronisms doing the rounds at the moment. And that added, so what, 750 billion euros to uh, the existing QE package. Um, and it did play around a little bit with including non-financial commercial paper. And it included Greece amongst the uh, you know the the, the potential um, qualification for the um, collateral as well but it's as you say at the end of the day when you start looking at some of these shares compared to GDP it really ain't that much 
And it's interesting, I think, looking at you know, the various European economies at the moment, some areas where sentiment seems to be holding up better than others, the likes of Germany, where they really have a, a significant fiscal package in place there compared to a lot of the others who are looking across to, you know, to, for, to the Eurozone as a whole, to the EU Commission to come out and do something. But um, again, it's just a reflection of the fact we've got these national divisions over both monetary and fiscal policy and the older coronavirus is increasingly exposing them. So on net then, uh, Europe has done the least in emergency moves um, compared to North America, compared to China, Japan. Um, how well, you... at, at this stage, I think so. I think that's probably fair to say. Although, I mean, on an individual country basis, um, there have been some significant packages put through, say Germany, Spain, in particular, Italy to some extent as well. But you know, the the, the problem I think from the investor viewpoint is that they want to see the eurozone acting um with a, a harmonious face it's supposed to be a whole block it's not supposed to be individual countries doing their own thing because when mm. push comes to shove the various leaders can't agree so it's you know it's something which i you know we talked about in the past i think but if if we don't start to see some improvement in sort of overall political stability across the region, you know, the harmony side of it, then you're going to kind of wonder what it's going to do to, you know, the longer term futures of Euro. You know, mm. can it really be guarded as a sort of safe haven asset? The chances are, well, perhaps not. Well, let's talk about Germany now. They're the cent, they're, they're the center, or the, they, I guess, the, in France, would be considered, I think, you know, the central pillars of the EU. We have a, and a bunch of, and Germany has certainly uh, gained a lot of respect in its um, uh, virus um, uh, numbers. Next week, we get economic numbers. We're going to get uh, sentiment numbers, uh, both from the business and consumer levels and several different reports, as, long, as well as um, the April um, flash PMIs, uh, manufacturing and non-manufacturing. What, you know, uh, uh, can we see Germany suffering less? Will it be evident? Will there, you know, how many dislocations are happening in Germany? A lot. And I think, to be honest, at least, as you say, I think... Out of Europe this week, there's not really a great deal to sort of, you know, to, 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 to hang on to in terms of providing a guide to, to what's, what's been going on during the crisis. Next week, as you mentioned, you'll get the EFO survey. Well, that's on Friday. We'll get these flash PMIs on Thursday. And I think, you know, those two sets of reports are going to be extremely important. Now, for a lot of Europe, we didn't see the lockdown coming in on a national basis until around about the middle of March time. We have had some information out of the likes of the, the Bank of France for example, which have actually, looking at their own private surveys of activity, have found a major difference between the way the economy was working over the first half of March and the second half when, effective, it imploded. So these April numbers are really going to give us a first look at how this, you know, this almost European-wide lockdown is going to be has been affecting these economies. And I think Germany is going to come out of it very badly, like everybody else. And to be fair, I think people were perhaps a little bit surprised by some of the the final March PMI data um, because the general expectation was they might be a lot worse. Um, I think if you remember rightly, we had the, the composite headline index, so the GDP proxy was 35, which of course is a rotten number, but not as bad as you know the 30 or even less than 30 we've seen coming out of some countries. And ironically, one of the things which I suppose at least you can try and look at reg relatively positively, recent numbers out of Germany and indeed out of France, so to, you know the two biggest economies within the Eurozone, as far as manufacturing goes, and this, as we talked about 
about so often in the past has been the real problem for Europe. Both French manufacturing and German manufacturing were showing real signs of emerging from recession. And we've had some, you know, put a straight line through the January and February numbers. And it really meant that March would have to be pretty horrible for both if we were not going to see recession come to an end. Now, of course, as it is, because we've got the coronavirus hit, that might have been enough to turn March into sufficient negative territory to ensure another quarter of sub-zero growth. But it, you know, either way, it does suggest at least that before the onset of the coronavirus, you know, European manufacturing was starting to, you know, to drag itself up um, from what has been a, a pretty, pretty poor recession over the course of the last uh, half year or so. What about the European labor market? Now, the North American labor uh, market, we had a terrible uh, Canadian report last week for March, and, we, and that preceded a whole series of, uh, of enormous uh, 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 declines in U.S. employment. Uh, how significant has the labor market dislocation been in Europe? Well, in terms of the numbers, unfortunately, we don't really have a great deal to go with. Um, you know, the problem with the in particular labour market numbers in Europe, they tend to be quite lagging. So as of the beginning of what this month, um, the latest update we've got is still only for February. Now, what you can say about February, though, is actually what came in surprisingly well in terms of Eurozone unemployment. It fell 88,000. We saw the unemployment rate unexpectedly dropping down from 74 to 7.3%. So that's its lowest rate in more than a decade so it does suggest that again prior to the onset of this virus uh, the labor market and notwithstanding the number of times we talked about sluggish and disappointing economic growth across the eurozone the labor market itself has actually been able to hold up remarkably well now presuming we've got to assume as a result of a lockdown that some of these unemployment numbers are going to start turning up and going through the roof over the course of the next month or so mm. but at least as of february you know things weren't looking too bad so there's no weekly data Data on jobless claims like the U.S. Any evidence? Anything you can you can find? No, well, really, we're, when it comes to this sort of thing, you tend to look at some of these, uh, you know, some of the surveys. So, you know, classically the PMI, see what's happening to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the labour component of that, and that will obviously be one of the, you know, the leading factors for markets to be constantly concentrating upon next week. What about the so major about, what, what about the major corporations? Have they been announcing any mass layoffs, anything like that? There have been some. I mean, a lot of it is just sort of you know, furloughing of staff at the moment, um, hoping, you know, particularly in the likes of the UK, where the government, to all intents and purposes, is is providing 80% of, of workers workers' salaries where they've been uh, furloughed. So it's still effectively got jobs, um, but the, but the company's not paying them. So the government's uh, forking out most of most of their salary or wages. You're getting some of that across Europe as well, but a lot of it is. I mean, unemployment is going to go up sharply. The um, particular in the, the likes of the auto sector, which was struggling very badly in before the virus struck. Um, the likes of the, the big German manufacturer had been hit badly by this, the slowdown in global trade. And that was already starting to have knock-on effects you know, elsewhere across Europe. But I think um, it's yeah, if the labour market, to be fair, across Europe has held up by and large surprisingly well during the last year or so. And we've consistently seen um, unemployment numbers coming in below what market expectations have been. So tell me your side, jobless claims, they seem to be settling at ridiculously high numbers. So I would assume mm. there are going to be some seriously nasty employment, monthly employment reports coming up. Yes, uh, I, that was the good, but there was actually good news in that in last week's because the rate had slowed uh, 
Um, I think it was from 6.8 to a 6.6, something like that. I'm just looking right now for the Econa Day uh, consensus coming up on uh, the one on um, Thursday morning. And where is it? There it is. Okay. And right now we're looking at... um, 5.5 5.5 million. So it's kind of like the infection rate. Uh, it's actually very, very high, but it's coming off its peak. And hopefully that's what we'll see. Um, these have, they're very, very hard to predict, but the last three reports have had, but totaled about 17 million uh, Americans filing for unemployment claims, this being concentrated in accommodations um, and food services. And uh, also, but the service sector in general, um, and uh, and we've seen that with the PMIs, by the way. If you look, think about those PMIs that we've been seeing, they divide them up between manufacturing and services, and the service ones, the ones have been taking the huge hits. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, in any case, uh, we're going to have, you know, if, uh, if if you compare this, there's roughly 160 million Americans who are employed, so. You know, seventeen million in that. I did the behind the envelope kind of thing the other day. I'm, you know, double digit, low double digit unemployment rate for, uh, you know, April shouldn't be a shock, even how mm-hmm. shocking that may be. But um, we'll have to see. Uh, in any case, but I guess we have to look, start look forward in, to the redeployment of this labor force. If it's smoothly, if people go back to work smoothly, if the employers take them on smoothly, if the employers use this uh, opportunity as they might see it to down, you know, to uh, down staff, that this would be a time to do that. And uh, and how much you know, new force will be coming in will mm-hmm. be part of the recovery story and how fast um, these economies can snap back. Well, too, there's been some um, a new forecast, which I know we're talking forecasts here, as you mentioned, some of these figures you can almost take with a pinch of salt because they're just so dramatic that, you know, the, the, the area of sort of so uncertainty surrounding them is huge. But the Office for Budget Responsibility in the UK, um, these are the guys who are responsible for producing the official uh, budget forecast or target, if you like, that the government tries to adhere to um, over the course of the fiscal year. Well, they've just updated their numbers now for the first time to include you know, supposed effects of the coronavirus. And they're assuming uh, what is a, you know, possibly a reasonable assumption that will be a, a three-month lockdown scenario. Now, before the coronavirus, virus um, struck, they were looking for second quarter GDP growth in the UK, quarter on quarter basis as we do over here, about 0.4%, which by UK standards of late actually wouldn't be too bad. They are now talking about under their, their sort of central case scenario, a decline in second quarter GDP of 35% with the jobless rate rising from currently, where are we, 3.9% to 10%, and underlying public sector borrowing, so the, the public sector net borrowing requirement excluding um, excluding commercial banks or privatised banks, nationalised banks, I should say, climbing up to uh, 14% of GDP, which would be the largest since Second World War. Now, these numbers are clearly just, you know, just their own estimates, but it just it does highlight you know, the, the short-term effect that this virus could have as we get this lockdown, lockdown coming through and impacting both all the demand side and the supply side as well. 
Um, what else should I mention? I suppose since we're on the UK, I should just mention there was something new from the uh, Bank of England announced last week, which I think some people have almost misinterpreted. Um, and that was they announced that they'll be extending uh, their Ways and Means facility. And this is uh, the government's pre-existing overdraft at the bank. It's being extended to provide additional liquidity as required uh, as long as this virus goes on for. So effectively, you could be you could say that the bank itself will be to all intents and purposes directly funding the government's deficit. However, they're extremely keen to point out that this extension will be only temporary and it shouldn't be seen as a switch to monetary financing of the deficit itself. Rather, it's just a case of a sort of a smoothing operation aiming to limit the what potential disruptions to the gilt and the sterling money markets, which is going to be caused, you know, not just in the UK, but in lots of countries, you know, by the sharp increase in uh, borrowing needed to fund the various government's emergency COVID-19 support packages but isn't uh, qe it, it, isn't qe itself a de facto financing of the government's deficit qe yeah qe well <laughs> qe of course is is put through in the secondary markets rather than the primary market so um effectively the, the individual central banks will say yeah they're printing money but they're buying stock that's already out there this is effectively directly going to the government and saying we'll buy you you know we'll buy whatever you want to sell us um but it's interesting it's been there's been some discussion certainly over here looking at what the bank's doing so well, this is all about really controlling the gilt gilt market uh, making sure you know gilt yields don't go all over the place and to some extent you know from the, all the packages that the fed's been putting through of late um some of it albeit perhaps um you know courtesy of the treasury but does this actually smack of some kind of well yield target control a la japan mm. um and it may be interesting if it actually goes down that route now, for, the, for a country like Japan, which yeah, at the end of the day doesn't have an external deficit to worry about, you can mm -hmm. probably get away with it. But for mm -hmm. likes of the UK, which has been racking up these current account deficits and sizable mm -hmm. ones for such a long time now, the idea is suddenly coming out and say, well, look, we're going to target, let's say, the 10-year gilt yield at 0%, mm -hmm. irrespective of whether that's high enough to actually attract the funding needed to fund mm -hmm. the current account deficit. Well, you know, that's mm -hmm. a different question altogether. Well, that's what the Fed said in, in its emergency announcements on expanding QE, uh, unlimited, uh, indefinite, and it could be any group of maturities targeting anywhere. So we don't know. But yeah. uh, it, it's open, you know. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, I guess we're very long enough. One thing I will just quickly mention, so such is the, I suppose, the demand now for up-to-date economic statistics that uh, StatCan in Canada, uh, the guys who are responsible for their um, official economic statistics, they'll be releasing a nowcast estimate of March GDP um, tomorrow. Uh, so that's Wednesday. So that will be a couple of weeks ahead of the next official GDP report, which will only be for February. So very much indication of just how, you know, really policymakers want to know what's happening now so they can make up their policy and adjust very quickly to this uh this coronavirus so will we be calling this a flash you think what, what should we be calling well let's see if it's I suppose, effectively, um, you have lots of now cast your side, don't you, from various regional feds? Yeah, but not from the officials. But not, no, I say, yeah, you're right. I mean, as I understand it, they're calling it a now cast. And whether this is going to be the start of uh, you know, a, reg a regular um, release or a one-off type thing, I don't know at this stage. It's only just, it's only just been announced, it's, I think. It's Q1? Is it going to be Q1? No, this will be for March because they have their monthly Oh, just for the so. March? Well, we already know January, February. So then, so well, Canada will be... be 
Well, see, Canada, we don't. The Canadian official GDP numbers come out quite late, a lot later than the state. I know you have quarterly, but a lot later in comparison from the state side. So as we currently currently have, we don't actually have February GDP out of Canada yet. But before we get February GDP, they're <laughs> going to come out with an estimate, oh. you know, an outcast you... estimate of what March looks like. And what are we supposed to do with a database with something like that? Right? That is a very good question. It needs modified. <laughs> Fortunately, we got all these clever technical people who I'm sure will That's sort right. that out. That's right. We're listening to this right now. <laughs> Thinking, oh, good. Okay, then. Um, right, on a, on a reasonably jovial note, I suppose, let's round it off there for this week. Uh, but to keep up to date with what is happening now, remember, keep checking Economy global economic calendar. On behalf of Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. Stay safe and we'll speak with you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>